Hi, everybody, a everybody gay listeners. This is Vina. Um, I am just uh, putting in this message to let you know that for some reason, our podcast software was being particularly wonky and uh, disagreeable on this episode. And so uh, some of the things that we might usually have edited out uh, had to stay in. And you'll notice that our audio, which uh, is never quite as great as we would love it to be, is... um, a, a little bit uh, extra extra lacking in this episode. So our apologies. We hope that you can still listen and enjoy this episode because we certainly enjoyed recording it. Um, and without further ado, on to the episode. I've sent it to you. It's recording. <laughs> Hello and welcome Hello, and welcome everybody, gay. everybody gay. Um, let's stay in this recording session and I'll just edit out. <laughs> All right. Um, um okay, so let's, we'll, we'll start over. Okay. Hello and welcome to everybody, a everybody gay. A queer exploration of pretty little liars. With your hosts, speak pirate, AKA Joanna. I'm here. I'm queer. And I have a cat named Spencer. And your other host, LCO123, a.k.a. Vina, a proud member of the Church of Vanderjesus. And tonight we are here to talk about I Must Confess. And I must confess, a lot happens in this episode. Yes, a lot happens and also a lot of setup for the finale, which is the, the episode after. I remembered this as largely a setup episode, so I was really surprised um, as I was watching it, by how many things actually went down. The main event here, of course, is that the liars, for the first time, do confess to another person outside the group uh, and outside of their, you know, their teen peer group, like boyfriends, significant others. Uh, they do confess what is happening in regards to A, and the cyber stalking and the bullying. Uh, they do tell Dr. Sullivan about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it is a really significant event. And I, I agree about so much stuff happening. It, I was looking through my notes earlier and was so surprised by how far into the episode the rehearsal dinner happens. Um, because I always kind of remembered that as the main plot of this episode. But it's like, there's a bunch of stuff that happens before we even get there. Yes, uh, there's so much going on. There's Hannah and the rehearsal dinner. There's Grandma Marin coming to town. Peter Hastings is in town being sketchy. Uh, the Montgomery family is having a lot more drama, as always, and Emily uh, gets parented by Ashley into making uh, a great decision that brings one Maya St. Germain back to town, and the two of them have the cutest little lesbian dinner date ever. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, after this episode, I really feel like Ella might be the worst mom on the show. I mean, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. <laughs> Yeah. But, my god yeah i um really really hard agree and i'm sure you'll have lots of things to say about the argument that she and byron have here but woof a uh, lot going on let's go ahead let's let's just dive on in all right all right um we start in uh hannah and emily's room it is three in the morning emily can't sleep she checks her phone and looks concerned as the mystery music starts to play. 
Um, we cut ahead to 5.15 a.m. where Emily is sneaking out to her car, which awakens Hannah, who is sleeping in earrings. It looked like when she stood up, she had like these big hoop earrings on. Okay, Hannah, interesting choice. Um, she hears that Emily has left. The next morning, the liars are panicking. They don't know where Emily is. Arya thinks that Emily might have done something crazy. Uh, Spencer points out that she didn't even bring her phone. Um, they don't know what is going on and we're kind of cross-cutting between their concern and Emily out running in the woods. As Spencer is scrolling through Emily's phone, they, she finds a picture of Presria making out and it becomes clear that this is the message that Emily got in the middle of the night. A wanted Emily to rat out Presria uh, to Ella. Spencer is kind of like frustrated and flustered in this scene. But I also really like how we're getting kind of an unusual angle into one of A's schemes here. We're like, we're seeing like the aftermath basically of, of the text message. And we're focusing more on Emily's emotional headspace here than the content of the message as Emily um, kind of comes to a stop in her running, seems super upset. We cut to uh, Emily showing up at Dr. Sullivan's office saying that she's ready to talk. Dr. Sullivan opens the door saying that um, that the others are here and we see that all of the liars are there sitting in Dr. Sullivan's office. Yes, I really like that ending to this whole sequence uh, that the liars have, they know Emily well enough to figure out that that is what her next step is going to be. And rather than argue with it or try to dissuade her, instead they've met her there uh, on, you know, on the ground that she needs to be met on. So I really like that about the liar friendships. Uh, I also like that we don't immediately get pulled into the, oh no, we can't reveal Presria drama, uh, that the liars are just genuinely concerned about Emily and what's going on with her. Uh, and I also just do want to call out that Aria uh, gives us our first very regrettable reference to A as a series of pronouns that end with the word it, uh, which was never a great thing that the show was doing, uh, particularly in light of decisions that they later made. Uh, it was even worse. Uh, I really wish, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, is it better to like correct it now or is it better to leave it in as something that they did wrong? I don't know. But anyway, uh, I just thought I'd call that out because they do it a few times over the run of the show and it's never a good thing. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and it, it is interesting that, like, Presria remains sort of, like, the most tangible thing that could be revealed about any one of the liars. Like, it's the most sort of, like, direct cause and effect. Revealing this information is going to hurt someone. Um, of course, <laughs> this is also information that absolutely should be revealed to all. But uh, it, it kind of, it, within their circle of friends, it's like the, the secret that they all kind of get pushed Which is interesting bit. that that secret has sort of taken pride of place over the Jenna thing. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, I think because revealing the Jenna thing would potentially bring them all down. And this is specifically about Emily having to hurt one of her That's friends. a good point. That's a good point. Um, at Dr. Sullivan's, Emily and the liars have a spirited back and forth about whether Emily should go to Texas, whether she's the weakest link, how she doesn't want to be used as a bowling ball against her friends. Dr. Sullivan's head is moving back and forth like she's watching a tennis match, and she eventually cuts in and asks, 
who's trying to use Emily against her friends? And it's Spencer who finally answers someone who's been trying to hurt us, who has been for a long time. And this is like the payoff moment of them finally uh, admitting what's going on, of like naming it and taking away its power. You know, A has been sort of this like Voldemort figure for them, like, uh, you know, fear of telling someone increases the fear of the thing itself. And so this is a big moment. They are admitting to an adult what's happening. Do you think it's significant that Spencer is the one to kind of break first? Yeah, here? well, I mean, we talked before about Spencer potentially being the weakest link, but I also think that Spencer Spencer is the leader uh, of the group at this point, and I mm-hmm. think that no one else would feel comfortable saying the words before she does. Like, it, it has to be Spencer. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. I I had not remembered which one of them said it first. And in my mind, it was actually all of the other liars mm-hmm. before Spencer, because I think of Spencer as generally sort of being the most protective over their secret and over um, the what information gets out. Uh, but I actually, I kind of like it being Spencer because... like you say it yeah and spencer has a raging need to control the narrative we always see her doing that like even if it's just the narrative in her own head so yeah i i think it really tracks that spencer is the one to say it first totally um over in the hastings de Laurentiis, you know flowering yard farm zoo whatever this place has become toby is uh is working in the yard when he sees a dark car parked uh parked kind of off in in the in the brush um with some music playing he walks over and jetting inside eating cherries and lining up the pits like a total weirdo um toby approaches and somehow doesn't seem to to tip jenna off or maybe she's just ignoring him um but he sneaks away when garrett leaves the comes into the car and kisses jenna these two just want to make sure that Everybody knows exactly what's going on. Also, has Spencer not told Toby about Jenna and Garrett? Because he seems really surprised. That they're yeah, I agree. He does seem surprised. I mean, maybe he's shocked that anyone would feel like amorous coming back to the car and seeing that their significant other had been doing this weird pit line in the dashboard. I mean, <laughs> that's somewhat shocking for sure. Um, but I, I feel like uh, here we see Toby watching Garrett and Jenna make out in their car. Later, there's going to be a scene of our people watching Toby and Spencer make out in his truck. And we've already had the flashback uh, previously in PLL where Allison and Aria caught Byron and Meredith making out in his vehicle. So really, get a room is like a thing that a lot of people in Rosewood might want to think about. Your cars are never as private as you seem to think, especially because I almost feel like Toby's car is going to be parked in a really similar location to where Garrett's is parked in this scene. Basically the same mm-hmm. spot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think we get our raciest Spoby scene to date in this episode. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about it more when we get there, but it, it does seem kind of racy and neither of them seem especially into it. So it's a, it's a fun mix. <laughs> It definitely is. 
Uh, clearing brush at the Hastings property. So that that's happened. And then we switch back to the therapy session where Dr. Sullivan is asking a lot of probing questions about when these messages started, if they know who A is, or if they have any ideas, why they've waited so long to tell anyone. Uh, I don't feel like these questions themselves are super helpful, but they do allow an opening for the liars to finally talk about things, which is a big deal. I couldn't help but read this scene through like a Me Too lens in terms of the the liars kind of shame, their uncertainty, their fear about being blamed, their refusal to trust anyone here, and them really sort of hanging on that question of why they haven't spoken up until now. Like they just all seem so, um, so ashamed. And I think, you know, we talked, I think a bit last week about how NAT had this great opportunity to function as sort of this great, this metaphor for rape culture. And I think that this is another moment where um, A is functioning as, as a metaphor for, for rape culture. And, and yeah, I, I just think in, in this current context, it's, it's a really interesting lens to look at this through. I would totally agree with that. Um, I felt like when I watched the scene again, I I'm used to thinking of Dr. Sullivan as being a really helpful character for the liars. And I do still think that she is, but she wasn't quite as helpful as I had maybe uh, made her out to be in my mind. These questions felt very much like more of an interrogation uh, as opposed to a therapy session mm -hmm. of like, well, how does, you know, like, how does this make you feel? And what, what other ways do you think you could have responded to this? And, you know, like, uh, I, I felt like sure. um, she was kind of acting like in a, in a different way than I had maybe expected would, would be more helpful. But I, I don't actually think that her questions here matter so much as the fact that she is giving the liars a space to finally talk about all of these things that have been weighing on them. And so I don't want to, like, downplay that because that's obviously the number one most important thing for him. Yeah, and you know, when you were saying that it kind of feels like an interrogation, I almost feel like Sullivan is more of a stand-in for like a cop than a therapist in this scene because the liars so much cannot trust the cops at this point between Wilden and Garrett. Um, and so it's, it, I think this is kind of a case a little bit of Dr. Sullivan is just sort of the stand-in adult character, but is not really maybe responding from a hopefully therapeutic right and it's really unknown whether anyone who is involved in the show has ever been to therapy <laughs> oh my god we'll have more to talk about in this episode about that very thing um so the sort of end note of this scene is the fact that um the liars are all exchanging some eye contact about the the, the question um about why they haven't told anybody and when we cut back to school, we learn that they did not bring up Jenna and Jenna, you know, being the reason why they didn't tell anybody. Um, Tom Marin wants to sue everyone after the fashion show. We find out the liars parents are starting to finally clue in that somebody is messing with them. Spencer gives Hannah a stack of horse books to give to Kate, which I really wish we had seen that initial conversation. And Spencer kind of like um gives hannah gives hannah some grief for not actually getting new horse books for kate um i like the idea that like it's not the fact that it's like kind of a stupid gift it's the fact that they're not new um hannah doesn't want to blow up her relationship with her dad she feels like things are finally going well oh hannah um they think that garrett is helping jenna be a this is like continues the theme that i feel like continues for so much of the show where jenna is always a and not a 
Like she always, it's a little bit A, but like never can totally be A, according to the line. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I love Hannah's incredible confidence here that she is going to walk back into Kate's life with just her uh, her own charms and these used horse books that she got from Spencer. I mean, Kate has a horse. Kate presumably already knows a great deal about horses, but these like very thick horse picture textbooks that Spencer has just laying around in her home are, are going to be the way uh, back into this relationship. I also like that Aria is the one who isn't completely believing uh, this whole, you know, Jenna is A, Garrett is helping her, uh, who knows what their motivation is. Aria is the one who's kind of questioning this, which I feel like could maybe be interpreted as standing up for Jenna or softening towards Jenna a little bit. I feel like now that they've had that whole pottery situation together, I feel like you can trace like the softening of Jenna and Aria towards each other from this period. Aria has softened in Jenna's hands, much like the clay that Jenna was using. To make exactly. As unchained melody played in the background. Um, but the, the Liar's Corner conversation is interrupted by a delightful new arrival in the form of Hannah's grandma, Marin. She is a day early for the rehearsal dinner. She's never seen Hannah eating anything green. She needs Hannah's house keys and to drag her off to the bathroom to wipe, as she says, the dew from her lily. You know, I, I mean, we'll talk about this more. I feel like this character, Regina Marin, is so much set up to be a character that we might find annoying or like that we've seen versions of and kind of would roll our eyes at. But she's so charming and funny and so clearly on Hannah's side the whole time that it's like you just instantly love this character. Like that comment about Hannah and the salad, we've seen multiple other characters make comments about Hannah's eating habits through the show in this way that felt really sort of judgmental and snide and unhelpful and with Regina it just feels sort of funny and I light. completely agree and Regina like there are other moments that we'll probably talk about this in the episode but I really feel like Regina is where Hannah gets a lot of this from like there's a lot of Ashley in Hannah for mm -hmm. sure in her you know extremely generous and benevolent heart in her compassion in her empathy etc but when you when you wonder who hannah might have learned the idea from that tact is just not saying true stuff i feel like uh grandma marin is a, a solid bet for that yes yes i agree and i love ashley and regina's relationship so much which we will talk about later um, oh my goodness, over at the Montgomery house, two of our favorite terrible parents are having a very loud argument about how to care for their son. Byron feels like they must do something right away. They must get Mike in to see a psychiatrist. They must get him on medication. Ella says that they need to try it with the therapist. She doesn't want Mike to be all drugged out. She doesn't want to, he needs to talk about his feelings, not cover them up with medication. Oh my goodness, these two just so wrong-headed in all of this first of all most people it's a combination of the two that they find helpful that seems to be what mike needs considering that he seems to be dealing with some pretty intense depression at this time 
Um, a combination would be a great approach. I would like to refer Ella to the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend song, Antidepressants Are So Not a Big Deal. I think she could listen to that and learn a lot. This idea that medication and therapy are mutually exclusive is completely, uh, completely inaccurate. And I feel like feeds into so many um, sort of harmful stereotypes about mental health care. Um, and then the icing on the cake of this scene is Aria comes in. Ella brings up the situation to Aria, probably because she wants Aria to. Vaguely, it's under the guise of like, this shouldn't be a secret, but I feel like uh, it, it, mostly it just plays as once again, the Montgomery's having terrible boundaries. Oh, I absolutely second everything that you said. Uh, I really feel like they're drawing a really false dichotomy of you either get on medication or you go to talk therapy. It's one or the other. It can't be both when for the majority of people, it is maybe a combination of both. Um, antidepressants are not burying your feelings. It's a way to correct chemical imbalances in your brain. Uh, it's no different than if you're taking, you know, blood pressure medication or wearing glasses to help you see better. Um, so this is just kind of another demonstration that the show is really not caring for people's mental health at all. Uh, but I will also say that a thing that they could do instead of having this loud argument in the kitchen is to talk to their son who might have something to say about what course of treatment he wants and maybe also talk to his therapist. Yes. Yes. The, the way that they were talking was like, it was like they were, they would be the ones prescribing the medication or something. It's like, there are trained many different trained professionals that you guys can talk to. And it's not like they're just going to start shoving pills down Mike's throat. Like, Oh, it, it's, it, and once again, Byron's brother is brought up in this scene and Ella is quick to say that Mike is not Byron. Well, brother. also it seems like, uh, it seems like the sort of, uh, the sort of angle they're coming from, or that at least Byron is coming from, or maybe even just that Ella thinks he's coming from is that Byron just wants to fix this, that he sees Mike as a problem that needs fixing. And so I would just like to put it out there that, you know, if you're suffering from depression or any other mental illness, that does not mean that you are broken and need to be fixed. That is super damaging. Thanks, Byron. Uh, and then after they're having this whole fight, uh, instead of, you know, staying and talking it through like a rational adult, uh, Byron snidely declares that he is not taking a poll so he's not going to you know solicit Arya's opinion about this and then he exits he just swans out of the house because he is the worst yeah i i feel like ella and byron are both kind of competing for the worst in this episode they are both really terrible yeah i i mean i don't know that you can really give it to to one or the other they they are really uh they are really in their own league here <laughs> they are they are they're kind of a package deal because i feel like they really they're really a couple that brings out the worst in each other and truth you see that a lot in this episode. Oof. Uh, in the Marin house, uh, Hannah is chatting on the phone to an off-screen Caleb about the ocean. Uh, she lets him go to take a call from her dad, who asks her to do a toast at the dinner with Kate. 
uh, Regina, a.k.a. Grandma, is opposed, uh, and Hannah tries to take up for her dad, saying he's in love with Isabel, and like Ashley says, he deserves to be happy, which uh, this is the point of where I feel like Grandma is showing a bit of where Hannah gets it from, says cows are happy and they end up sloppy joes. At which point, Ashley comes in and notices that Grandma has been rearranging the kitchen and attempting to rearrange her life by suggesting she fight to keep Tom. Ashley is not into it and uh, wants Regina to put those bowls back where they came from. Oh, man. I mean, yes, I feel like we have seen many variations on, like, the domineering mother-in-law character, but what I love is that Ashley can dish it back to Regina. Like, you can, you totally believe that these two women have this history, and, like, there's a lot of actual love and respect here, but also they just, like, get on each other's nerves. And I love that we have this scene here, and then later, Ashley will give us a little bit more context for their relationship. Um, But I I feel like this is a dynamic you you never really see um, in media, which is this idea of uh, an ex-mother-in-law who actually kind of likes her ex-daughter-in-law more than her own child. Uh, and it's, it, it's really, um, I, I would imagine that it's probably a dynamic that maybe plays out in real life more than media depictions of mother-in-law relationships would have us believe but i I really like it with these characters i agree it is a great great twist to the usual trope totally oh my god this scene okay so in mike's room he is on his computer the room is a mess aria comes upstairs to get him to come to get mike to come downstairs to set the table they're going to have dinner Mike wants to be left alone. Aria wants him to get off the computer. Ella arrives, um, basically just repeats everything that Aria said, time to get off the computer, time to come have dinner. Uh, Mike and Ella tussle over the computer. Ella tries to grab it out of his grasp. Mike um, kind of holds it and sort of angles it in such a way that Ella ends up kind of flying across the room and hitting her wrist on a bedpost, I think. Uh, injuring it somehow Mike runs off to the bathroom and immediately like in the same breath Ella says to Aria we can't tell your father about this I fell down the stairs this is the story I fell down the stairs your father this did not happen this did not happen I'm gonna take care of it don't worry about it you know stop it oh I hate this so much First of all, painting Mike as somehow violent or a danger to others is a twist to this storyline that I really, really hate. Um, Ella asking Aria to lie is like the most terrible. Ella being so afraid of Mike needing medication that she puts both of her parents in this terrible situation. Kind of unforgivable, I think. And never really gets rectified, even like, it's certainly not in this episode. I don't think that it really ever gets rectified within the show. Um, And I just, I feel like this is... This is, this is just playing on so many harmful tropes, and it's sort of muddling a bunch of tropes together, tropes about, um, you know, people being mentally ill and violent, tropes about medication, tropes about, like, domestic violence even, because Ella sort of reacts like a domestic violence victim in this moment. I just hate this scene. What are your thoughts? I would like to discuss what we think Mike was doing 
on the computer that he a did not want to be interrupted and b was really desperate for no one to see what was happening what what are your thoughts i have several um well one thought is that it's something gay um one one thought would be that it was like maybe a a chat room talking about depression or perhaps suicide um maybe he's writing fan fiction i don't know what are oh he's writing teen wolf fan fiction um yeah i i thought it could have been talking to strangers about coming out it could have been talking to mona it could have been being radicalized on 4chan or catfished by Prezra. Um, maybe learning how to make a bump key, but but we'll never know. Uh, we'll never know what it was that he was doing on there. Um, and I, I agree, the blocking of what exactly happens in this physical altercation is very confused. Like you don't really, you don't really see yeah. what it is. Uh, the main thing is that Ella gets hurt. Like that's the, that's kind of the takeaway. But it's not like, I, I mean, Mike doesn't really do anything more aggressive than not wanting to let go of his computer. So it's weird that the, um, the headline from this is like depressed, mentally ill Mike injured his mother uh because like that doesn't really seem to be what happens from watching the scene uh also i think that um i I think that if mike is a danger to anyone in the house he's a danger to himself like he is definitely exhibiting some concerning and self-destructive behaviors so that's really weird and it's also weird the way that ella responds to to her being injured and it's odd that her being injured sort of erases uh, any concern in that moment for Mike. Like, she seems to be acting like, well, the thing that we need to do for Mike now is to, is to hide this secret, when really, I mean, I, I feel like this would have been a, a good moment to also try to go to Mike and comfort him instead of, like, leaving him in this, like, place of thinking that he is a monstrous monster who just, you know, like caused his mom's hand to be amputated or something. Yeah. I mean, they're reacting as though Mike just like mm-hmm. Ella up or something. And and I feel like there's this weird thing that's happening here where it's like, in order to up the stakes of this storyline, it couldn't just be that Mike was self-destructive or that Mike was like, you know, a danger to himself. It was like, we have to, we have to make him violent, we throw Ella in the crosshairs. And the way that Ella reacts, I mean, it almost feels like Ella has, like, a, a past history with domestic violence or something. The way, like, it's so immediate, her desire to cover for him and to cover for, like you're saying, a, a situation that seemed clearly accidental and just sort of random. Um, Mike did not go after Ella. In fact, she was the one to initiate physical contact with him. Um, not that I'm saying, you know, like he could have reacted differently, but it just, the, the way that this plays is like Mike. 
this moment is really weird and I feel like just such a wrong-headed place to take this yeah and, and I'm also not saying that like if someone hurts you your job is to comfort them and make sure they're okay that's that's not what I'm saying when I think that Ella could have maybe tried to reach out to Mike instead of having all of her concerns vanish but I feel like this would be a moment for both of them to reassess like wow that situation got out of hand you know I'm hurting I understand you're hurting too let's talk about what's happening um but no instead everybody goes into um you know the patented montgomery cover-up mode and that's you know (laughs) we'll get more on it later yeah i mean even for ella to say to mike you know i felt scared in that moment you know can we talk about that like it's it's I don't think Ella's fear is misplaced like because Ella does seem really sort of shaken because I think that it's intense to have an interaction with someone like that, especially that someone being your child. But the way that that they take it is is weird. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I also uh, as we were watching this episode, I was thinking like, who has worse communication in this episode? Is it the Montgomery family or is it the Hastings? Um, Because Peter and Spencer have have quite a bit uh, that they do in this episode as well. But I feel like the Montgomery family has way worse communication because there are more of them. There are more of them having bad communication dynamics and all of their, like all of their weird secrets and silences are just like pinging around each other in, in really negative ways. Yeah. You know, I, I always sort of thought of Ella as like, a goodish parent like I kind of I don't know I felt like Ella and Aria always had like good mother-daughter chemistry like I was thinking of the Ella from later in the series I really think Ella is the worst mom on this show at least at this that point. is a hot take but I think I'm definitely gonna have to agree with you because Pam Fields I mean I think that the like an obvious choice might be like oh Pam Fields like she was so awful when Emily came out but Pam Fields really like she worked through her stuff. She 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 figured it out, and she talked to Emily eventually about her feelings about all of this, you know. And she communicated with Emily, um, and was able to come to a place of of understanding and acceptance. I feel like Ella doesn't communicate, and then doesn't like doesn't really take responsibility and just it's constantly this cover-up mode and this weird like sort of codependent narcissist dynamic that plays out in different ways with all different members of the family um that is just i mean no wonder mike is having difficulties here is why i think that ella is is probably the i'm gonna say she might be the worst mom through the run And that is because I think that Pam and Ashley and Veronica are all in their own ways, you know, certainly all of the parents on this show are flawed, but hopefully improvable humans, as is anyone. But I think that Pam and Veronica and Ashley are interested in modeling the way, like a good way to be in the world, like a, a path for their daughters to be like strong women in the mold of their mothers or a little different from their mothers but like they are really trying to like if if spencer winds up becoming a lot like veronica if hannah winds up becoming a lot like ashley uh if emily winds up becoming a good deal like pam like they're all gonna be okay 
if Arya winds up becoming a version of Ella, I don't think she's going to be okay. And I actually think that kind of is what she gets herself into by marrying Prezra. Um, I think that, like, I think Ella is not okay. Of the moms, Ella is, like, not necessarily in a great place in terms of, like, how she deals with her family, how she interacts with the world, how she interacts with her children. Uh, I think there's a lot of self-deception there, whereas with the Hastings, they're at least just sort of trying to deceive the outside world. Peter and Veronica have an absolute understanding of who each other, you know, who each of them are mm-hmm. uh, and and what their, you know, what their particular um, particular challenges are as partners to one another so yeah i think that uh i think that you're right i think that ella is probably the worst mom or at least the worst role model for her daughter totally agree and obviously we're not going to get here for seasons but i'll be really interested when we eventually do get to the plot line where ella's boyfriend hits on hannah and that whole storyline where um, Arya goes to her mom with that and Ella says something about like, oh, well, there were rumors, but I just didn't want to believe them. And it makes me think about like Ella, Ella has this really weird dynamic of sort of compulsively covering for the men in her life, you know, be it her husband, her son, her boyfriend, um, and, and sort of to the detriment of herself, to the detriment of her daughter, to the detriment of other women in her life and just other people in her life in general. Um, and I think that, I, 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 yeah, I mean, gosh, the Ella backstory would be an interesting one to get because that is a pattern that just we see time and time again. And it's really very troubling. And and I've always, you know, I with the whole Zach thing, like, it's I've always felt like there probably was more to that story like that there was you know that Ella witnessed something or saw something um that that she absolutely morally should have spoken up about and that she didn't and that that I think speaks to a real sort of fault in her character what's that Ella seeing something that she should absolutely morally speak up about and turning a blind eye because it's the path of least what what uh, yep. does she have that in her character i'm i'm shocked absolutely shocked yeah and that the zach thing i think in a lot of ways is a microcosm of the whole presbyter relationship okay. oh, we'll yes. get there. Okay. Uh, you know we have, anyway. we have so many episodes where it's like who is going to get to talk about the presbyter stuff and it's like each of us are like uh this in this episode it's like oh my gosh who's going to get this next byron and ella scene because yikes <laughs> um but Byron and Ella are basically I mean let's be real Presria the adult years Um, Spencer and Toby and a truck full of lumber are pulling up to the school and uh, Spoby is making out while also debating if Toby should try to find out more about what Jenna is up to is Nat back in session what is Jenna's involvement Spencer doesn't want to cross Jenna in case she tries to break them up again. Toby assures her it won't happen, but based on how distracted they are in this first makeout scene, I wouldn't be too sure. Yeah, the way that Toby repeatedly is like, it won't happen, Spencer. We'll never break up. We'll never break up, Spencer. It's like, Toby, you are like walking under a ladder and like, you know, like walking by a black cat and like you were just tempting fate here. Come on, dude. Like, come on. Um, at school, 
we actually see the principal. I don't know if we ever see the principal before, but uh, Dr. Sullivan is here to give a speech about the pressure everyone is under that she quickly pivots into talking about cyberbullying in a way that seems very pointed. And it was here that I thought to myself, isn't it funny how at its core PLL is like technically a show about cyberbullying? Um, because it's really so much more. Um, she's going on about how, you know, it's easier than ever to hide behind the anonymity of a text or an email. Mona has her one moment of this whole episode when she makes this little boring face and rolls her eyes in the middle of this conversation about her own behavior. <laughs> oh my God. This is such she's a great moment. She's filing her nails when the, when the camera pans over to her. We, we get a nice, like, uh, suspect rundown as Dr. Sullivan is speaking. We do see Jenna, yeah. who is smiling in her sort of, like, patented serpentine way that she has. And then we see, we, we get, like, a one, like, just two-second hit of Noel Kahn, who's there at the assembly, uh, but has no lines or anything in this episode. And then we get Mona, who is clearly bored. As they're talking about her cyberbullying. Also get Lucas, who, if we'll recall, is still probably, you know, having having to his massage with Emily from last week. Oh God. I just ugh, I hate Lucas so much. Um outside the school, the liars are debating whether Sullivan's speech maybe was worse and might have put a target on their back. They haven't heard anything from A, so maybe that's a good thing. Aria um, spies her mom, whose wrist is kind of like in a, in a bandage thing now um, and seems distracted. And then Jenna, who is like the worst victim of bullying, like has been victimized really more than anybody, tap, tap, taps her way down the stairs, asks, what did you think of the shrink's speech? PLL never misses an opportunity to like really double down on all the ableism. So first we're going to refer to the therapist as a shrink and, and kind of further stigmatize mental illness. Then Emily is going to say, could you please move your stick to Jenna? Jesus Christ, liars, you blinded this girl and you are going to make blind jokes to her face now? What is yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion that if Dr. Sullivan wanted the liars to open up more, this was actually kind of a bad move on her part uh, to sort of like expose them like this in, in front of the school. Um, but I, I just, uh, I just don't know. I, I do agree that Emily's snark here is really uncalled for. Uh, and also, I want to note that uh, just as Jason was supposed to be increasingly ominous uh, in the last episode, where he was sort of weirdly costumed for that role in the cardigan with the uh, rolled up shirt sleeves, I have to say that Jenna uh, seems to be doing more of her sort of like dark queen maneuvering here. But she is also sort of oddly costumed for that because she is wearing a not ominous at all colorful paisley print hippie blouse <laughs> well you know she can't sacrifice the fashion just because true, she needs to menace true. the liars a little bit um, at a fancy place in Philadelphia Kate is wearing a very pretty dress and flipping through those horse books that Hannah brought to her uh, she appears to like them and want to call bygones on the riding incident and phone threats. And this is exactly what I love about the liars being so ill-prepared to deal 
with open enemies. Kate has straight up declared to Hannah that she wishes her harm, and here is sweet, generous Hannah, willing to accept that it was just a misunderstanding now. I've given you some pictures of horsies. Now we will be sister friends. Um, they, they work on the toast while elsewhere at the party, Grandma Marin demonstrates her contempt of Tom and his cronies. Uh, Kate takes Hannah to another part of I'm going to call this like the penthouse suite of a hotel and shows her the wedding dress. It is silver and beaded and in a plastic bag. Then Kate pulls out the old water bottle full of vodka to top off their lemonades. Oh, Hannah. (laughs) Oh, man. There were a few things in this scene that gave me anxiety. First of all, the idea of starting the speech like maybe an hour before you're going to deliver it and they're just like casually pitching ideas back and forth and it's like ladies come on someone needs a someone needs a pad of paper you need some talking points like this is not the idea to just be like pitching themes and then the fact that like the wedding dress is just on a garment bag on this random couch it was like what is this I mean I get that Kate is like um intentionally wants it around because she wants to, she wants she knows that if if it, you know the closer the wedding dress is to hannah the more likely hannah can like do something bad to it but still the idea of the wedding dress just like draped over a random couch seemed really weird to me um also what do we think of kate i feel like she it, it's 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 an it's hard because like she's supposed to kind of both be not menacing and menacing, but I just feel like she's not an interesting enough villain for me to be terribly... I mean, I think they're leaning on a lot of tropes with her as the wicked stepsister, essentially. Uh, I also think that her... uh, She actually, like, moves this wedding dress from room to room with them as they go through the party. (laughs) So, um, I I feel like that was kind of a a clear indication of what her endgame was, which... Again, Hannah being unable to deal with an open enemy uh, is is not sure how, what to do with. Um, but yeah, I, I think that she's not a super interesting villain, but she's one of those interesting lower stakes villains that we don't see as much of as time goes on on the show. Yeah, like I'm trying to think of like a like a karate Jake. Would we put him in that category? I guess yeah, he's not really like, a villain. Uh, like I would um, say like how uh, Arya is later antagonized by Meredith, so she kind of has like a capitalized oh, villain sure. who's out for her. And uh, oh, and like well, like Spencer is later kind of antagonized by recovered Mona uh, and has like her as an antagonist. So you know, every now and then. You know, every now and then the liars get like a lower level open enemy uh, and they just never, they never know what to do. They're constantly like, here's a great hint for living in Rosewood. In addition to don't make out in your car, don't take food or drink from your known enemy. Like, don't drink tea that Meredith hands you. Don't drink lemonade that Kate is spiking here. Like, just, you know, mad eye moody it. Bring your own food and drink and just, uh, you know, just go with that. Right. And then we have like weird times where the low stakes villain like becomes a major villain, like mm-hmm. your cousin mm-hmm. Nate's where. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, should we yes. start a new recording? Uh, 
Okay, so speaking of drinking, um, we go over to the Marin house where Emily walks into the darkened Marin kitchen to see Ashley making herself a TV dinner and having a date with a bottle of wine. Um, and uh, Ashley didn't know that Emily is home and it looks like Emily is going to hang out with her for the evening. My question to you is, oh. is there a world in which we could ship these two? When Emily is an adult, yes, maybe. Um, I, I was, I, I was like, it's, I, I was thinking that Ashley does uh, later sleep with Jason, who is also <laughs> a good deal younger than her and a contemporary of the other generation. But um, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe in like another 10 years. There you go. Yeah, definitely not not current Emily. I do feel like these two have have a weird chemistry, like a not a not entirely unexpected chemistry. Maybe the actors just like enjoy each other's company. But yeah, um, yeah, I yeah, would I, I would definitely agree. Play off each other really uh, well. We then go back over to Dr. Sullivan, who is leaving her office after dark. She gets a phone call that is just a recording uh, of her own voice repeating. And I'm the first person you've told about this over and over again she hangs up then answers when the phone rings again a moment later it's the same recording playing again and again and she looks pretty spooked um as she is spooked she does something that a very normal human being would do in that she calls the police to tell them that her office may be bugged uh rosewood's finest are in just fine form uh as they refuse to help her by doing anything other than filling out a report. Garrett goes in for some extra points when he tries to badger her into revealing the names of the clients who were in the room when the recording was made, but Dr. Sullivan refuses. He acts like she's being uncooperative because all of the cops in Rosewood are the literal worst. They are. They are. Yeah, you know, it might be time to switch offices, Anne. I mean, A, will find you wherever you go. I, I really think, strongly I really agree. Think we'll have more to say about here. that at the end of the episode, for sure. But yeah, I. Uh, it's interesting, though, because a lot of times we talk about, like, what if the liars hadn't been so paralyzed by their fear? What if the liars had done things differently here they've told an adult and that adult has brought in the police to two situations uh two situations where one where her office was vandalized and now where she thinks her office is bugged and look at how the police treat even adult professional women in this town uh it doesn't really seem like the liars would have gotten anywhere No, no, it really doesn't. Absolutely not. Um, back at the rehearsal dinner, Kate and Hannah are talking. They both seem to be a bit drunk now as uh, Kate continues to pitch ideas for this toast. <laughs> Hannah, this toast is not going to write itself. Um, but Hannah is, I, as somebody who's like had to give a few toasts in my time, like, and like prepares a ways in advance, this storyline really, <laughs> really hit a nerve for me. Um, but uh, Hannah is mooning over a picture of Caleb. Um, she hands the picture over to Kate. And I don't know why, but it just really grossed me out to hear Kate mooning over Caleb. Like, it just felt like, I don't know, like weirdly robotic or something. Um, 
Kate keeps encouraging Hannah to drink and then suggests that they have <sighs> Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. Um, do you do you know what? Do you want to go back into the Marin kitchen to this Ashley Emily situation? <laughs> sure, if you don't mind. Um, the the beginning of an of an the <laughs> Ashley Emily fic that I promise I won't write. No, I don't. I don't ship. I don't ship teenage Emily with Ashley. I want. I want that to be on the record. Um, back at the Marin kitchen, Ashley is trying to put her kitchen back together while Emily asks about Regina because Emily is surprised that Regina would be staying with Ashley. Ashley points out that she thinks Regina actually likes her more than she likes Tom, which who wouldn't really? Um, but I do love that the dynamic between the two of them, Emily mentions that this situation must be kind of weird for Ashley. Ashley acknowledges that it is, but that she's okay with it. And then she asks about Samara. Um, Emily says, you know, she still has a lot of questions. And Ashley says that having Tom nearby helped her get clarity uh, that when the other person is not there, you make up the other side of the conversation for them. Clearly um, setting the stage for Maya's return, even though we're sort of meant to think that this is about Samara. Um, I really like how Ashley... Uh, plays this scene like it kind of feels like she's had a few drinks at this point like she's just a little bit loosened up um, and then Ashley thanks Emily for making a rough night a little less rough which uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's gonna write that Ashley Emily fic I think a little less rough would be a pretty good title oh my goodness um the <laughs> the thing I really That's like about this say. scene is that Ashley is uh, in many ways she's parenting Emily here. She's definitely giving her some life guidance, but it's also, it's, it's a very different kind of guidance than Emily would get from her own mom. This is definitely the kind of interaction that Emily would not be able to have with Pam. Uh, Pam, well, later in the series she might, but like generally Pam is not someone who's going to be drinking alone in her kitchen on a Friday night. And she's also not going to be someone who, uh, is going to kind of share that moment with her daughter in this way. And I also like the the way that Ashley tells her, you know, when the other person isn't here, we make up their side of the conversation, which isn't fair, because that applies not only to Emily and Samara and Emily Maya, but also very, very much to Emily Allison. Mm, great point. Great point. Yeah, I think um, throughout the series where Ashley, like, you know, um, sort of world-weary divorcee Ashley Marin will, like, dispense this advice to the liars that's not, like, it's not entirely appropriate for their situation necessarily because it's, like, they're not, you know, 40-year-old divorcees, but it it somehow works. Like, it mm -hmm, somehow, mm -hmm. it somehow I would definitely writer. agree with that. Uh, then over in the house of secrets and lies, Arya is doing her homework when Byron returns. He asks if everyone has eaten because he just expected everyone would stay hungry and wait for him to be done with his little snit. <laughs> Arya asks him to define everyone and says that she and Ella ate. Despite the fact that she was doing nothing more than answering the question he just asked, Byron takes this opportunity to lecture Arya about being too unforgiving to her brother. Ugh! He says there's a lot she doesn't know, which is not helpful because he's not admitting that he doesn't know either, and he's not offering her any more information. Then Ella comes in with her 
wrist in a brace and uh byron knows best thinks that she should get an x-rayed which leads aria uh leads her to exiting the room stage left to leave her parents alone with their casual deceptions you know and byron's comment about like you don't know everything I don't think, I think Arya knows more about the Mike situation than Byron does. I, I actually think what Byron might be referring to here is the situation with Byron's brother, which might have something to do with Mike, but might not have anything to do with I agree with, with that. And also, I feel, I mean, it's like sort of useless to try to keep track of the timing in this episode, but it feels like this scene is set as if Byron is just coming home after it after it has happened after ella has been injured but we know that like a whole day has passed because aria was at school and she saw ella having the brace so who knows apparently byron a day later thinks ella should go get an x-ray yeah i mean he does say something like how's the wrist so i think he had seen it but yeah i know what you mean it, it is as always the timeline is a little bit wonky um, Emily is at the grill, seemingly waiting for someone. She seems a bit nervous. There's a candle on the table. The person walks in and it is Maya, Maya St. Germain. Wow. Uh, not surprisingly, not coming in at an 11, but coming in with a big smile on her face. She sits down and yeah, I love how Emily's face just lights up here, uh, as does my heart. And, and Maya for her part seems equally thrilled to see Emily, uh, they do have kind of a weird greeting where they each say each other's names like hello maya hello emily just in case like someone didn't see season one <laughs> but it's cute and I, I love them so yes it, it is cute there is one moment at the end that makes me grind my teeth a little bit but we will <laughs> oh man okay so every time we see toby and spencer making out in his truck my mind drifts and I start thinking about how much more fun it would be to watch Spencer make out with Paige McCullers in a pickup truck. Um, so that's like sort of my, that's like something that I do as a mental coping mechanism when I see these scenes. I invite anyone, uh, I invite anyone to use that as they're doing a rewatch. Um, it's, it's much more fun. But, you know, T Toby and Paige, I'm just saying, uh, <laughs> but this is honestly a scene where despite Spencer topping him and his shirt being unbuttoned to the waist to show off all of his wolf hair, it really doesn't seem like either Toby or Spencer are super into the makeout. For example, Toby breaks up their intimate moment by saying that he thought he saw a shadow upstairs in Jason's house, which is relevant because they're parked on the street between the Hastings and De Laurentiis mansions. They resume kissing, only to have Spencer break it off when she sees two shadows in the upstairs windows and stomps out of the car, ready to confront Jason and Garrett and maybe even Jenna for spying on them. Now again, I don't mean to blame the victim here, but I believe Toby's suggestion that they just go somewhere else is solid. There is a difference between people videotaping you in private moments unaware through your windows and people looking out the window of their own home to see what you're doing while parked in front of their house. Basically, Spencer is having a private moment in a public slash community space, but she is outraged and will not back down as she storms up to Jason's door to confront him for existing in the upstairs of his own home. How dare he? She freezes in her self-righteous tracks, however, 
the appearance of Papa Hastings looking shady as hell coming down the front steps at the house of his sworn enemies. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you know, Maya 11, Spencer comes out of that car at like a 14. Like, she is just, she is just all riled up. I really think, you know, the whole like, who's looking at them, who's not looking at them. I really think that she was just a little bit bored in her moment with Toby and needed something to spice it up. And, a, you know, a little bit of voyeurism seemed like it might do the trick, um, especially if Jenna was involved. Um, but yeah, it is really, it is really interesting how she immediately goes to like, this shall not pass. Well, uh, I, I feel like um, it's, it's just when I first saw them come into this scene and Toby is like, they're kissing. And then he's like, I think I saw a shadow. I was like, what's going on here? Are they on a stakeout? Like, are they deliberately staking out Jason's house? But no, they're just making out there. And both of them are apparently kissing with their eyes open because they want to observe what else is happening around them. Um, you know, just like two totally normal teens. <laughs> yes, that should be the tagline for PLL. Just a couple of normal teens. Um, when we come back from commercial, Peter is a uh, very blustery and quick with excuses, saying that he was talking to Jason about the fence. Spent. Uh, uh, let's see. Spencer says she can't leave this alone. Uh, Peter says, I don't have to answer your questions as she continues to interrogate him and he gets more and more mad. And Toby jumps in and says, yeah, you do. Toby says that Spencer deserves to know. Peter starts yelling at Toby, saying that he could be out of a job. Spencer, don't get in the middle of this, Peter yells when Spencer steps in. I am in the middle of this, Spencer replies. Um, the two of them run off. Peter wants Spencer to go home, but she gets into Toby's car. And as they drive away in uh, in upset, Peter starts... Yeah, um, I feel like Toby is just trying to be a manly man intervener here. And it is the worst possible move because... Spencer was throwing questions at Peter right and left and as soon as Toby intervened he makes himself a target which Peter really latches on to like uh, he latches on to Toby trying to be the white knight here and just starts attacking him verbally and physically which does make Spencer like drop all of her interrogation uh, as she tries to stop her dad from beating up her boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like Toby, as soon as Toby says something, he seems a little bit regretful because he then sort of lets Spencer take the lead as they're like exiting the scene. Um, and it is, I guess, nice that Toby is there because he can drive Spencer away in this moment. But um, yeah, it, 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 it becomes about, it sort of becomes a pissing all when Toby is really involved in this argument at all. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, Toby, they had that previous conversation a few episodes ago where they were like up on the bluff looking down at the town and Toby was saying Spencer should have told him about everything she was going through because he could have done something. And when she was like, what? He's like, I don't know, something. I hope that somewhere out there there's a supercut of all the awful PLL men saying, do something. Because like Byron says it about Mike in this episode, when are they going to do something? And Toby always wants to do something. And so I just, I would, I would really like that. I would like a super thing, do something because they're all useless and really never do anything. 
Well, like last week when Ezra showed up at Jason's and was like, I'm here to save you, Arya. I'm here to do yes, something. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, Anne Sullivan is looking through files in her completely unlit office. If I felt insecure, like someone had maybe violated my personal space, like even if I didn't feel that way, even if I felt just like a slight bit of spooked because I watched like a too scary commercial or something, I would have like every light in my whole home turned on. But no, not Ann Sullivan. She is looking through her files in the total dark. She hears some noises and looks out the window and we see a black hoodie across the street watching her. Bum, bum, bum. Do you want to do you want to take us through this? Oh, I would. I would love to. Um, On the very cute gay date, Maya has been back about two weeks. Her parents are renting a house in Bucks County, future home of the dollhouse, which we learn is 45 minutes away. Uh, Did her parents leave town because of the pot bust? (laughs) (laughs) The the shame of a teen pot bust. or did Jason um, just turn up at their doorstep and like, like, did he just move in and he was like squatting in the house and they were like, oh no, a creepy man is here. We have to move. And then he was like, oh, also I'll give you a bunch of money to buy this house. And they were like, great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a white man and I want to uh, Yeah, I don't really know what happened there, but they're not in town anymore. Um, they're in Bucks County. Maya comments that Emily's parents must trust her these days to have left her in town while they've gone to Texas. Uh, She makes a joke that Pam might have someone watching them right now and speaks into a flower arrangement as if it's a transmitter. Um, I hope Mona enjoyed that. (laughs) Emily discusses that she isn't afraid of things anymore, which is a change, and she's ready to make real plans, which uh, the scene is heartbreaking in retrospect. To think about Emily like coming out of this place of fear that she was in not only about her own sexuality but like living in fear of a she's really doing her best to like break out of this you know ptsd survival uh mode pattern that she's got and she's trying to make positive changes it seems like she's you know kind of ready to to make real plans like she says uh so it's just it really kills you to know what the show has in store for these two uh, Maya seems a bit freaked out by Emily's uh, you know, gung-ho attitude, but she does hold Emily's hand and says that she won't leave before she gets her calamari. Although, she should, since Maya is supposed to be allergic to seafood! <laughs> <laughs> fair point, fair point, yes. And then I'll throw up on you, Emily. Yeah, they, 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 I mean, um, they hold hands, they gaze at each other by candlelight, and are generally perfect. Yes, they are very cute here. Um, it is true, though, uh, about, you know, it is really sad in retrospect. I kind of wish that, I don't know, I feel like the the pacing of Emily's sort of PTSD fear stuff in the last few episodes, like, it all gets wrapped up very quickly in this episode so that we can, like, have Maya back and have their relationship kind of, like, back on the table. And I sort of wish, I think it has the unintentional effect of a little bit playing, like, Maya is solving this problem for Emily, which I don't love when TV shows have like romantic relationships solve a character's emotional problems. Um, But I I think that it's more supposed to be that Emily is like finally in a place where she can be open to a relationship with Maya. And I also really like um, 
when Emily is talking about all the things she was scared of, Maya acknowledges, I was one of the people that you were scared of. And I really, and Emily agrees. And I really like that they can acknowledge between the two of them that um, Maya being so unapologetically herself and Emily having such strong was really scary for Emily. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also, I like that um, what you were saying when Mona breaks up Emily and Samara, when you were saying is A, being a life coach and kind of doing what Emily might like to do herself. I think it is really telling that in this moment, Emily decides what she wants is to try and reconnect with Maya rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I kind of wish that Maya had maybe been like mentioned. It almost seems like maybe they didn't know they were going to get Bianca Lawson like until they shot this episode, because it sort of seems like they could have dropped like some Maya hints or had like Maya text Emily or somebody tell Emily that like Maya's family moved back to town or something like that to kind of um, to kind of play that out a little bit better but oh yeah that's true but this is also the first uh the first inclination that we're gonna get of what turns into like a completely running theme throughout the series which is that no one who's ever in a relationship with emily is ever actually out of the relationship with emily maya comes back here and it's just like they just pick up exactly where they left off Paige McCullers is going to pick up exactly where they left off like 101 times. Uh, if, if you've ever dated Emily and then you're off for a while and then you just come back, that's really all you need to do. No other processing or emotional work required. Very true. Very true. Um, in Mike's bedroom, he is sitting on his bed. His eyes are filled up with tears. When Arya comes in, Um, he asks if Ella will be okay and she says that Ella will and then he asks if he will be okay and she sits on the bed and she says that he will and they hug and it's a really sweet moment I think this is what Mike has been needing all season um, is just for somebody to be there with him and hold space for him and love him and tell him that he's going to be okay but not yell at him or tell him how he's going to go about the process of being yeah i love this scene uh it's really nice it's touching i wish mike had continued to be this important to their family throughout the run of the series uh and i really love when aria comes in and she sits down on the bed with him because in the previous episode i was talking about how Mm -hmm. byron was just towering over him while he was laying down and i think it's so nice that aria like she just sits with him and she kind of does a Caleb thing. Like she sits mm-hmm. there for a minute and, you know, lets it, mm-hmm. lets it play out. Yeah. And, you know, we've like kind of joked about Mike being gay and how we sort of wish that was a reality. But I, I really do think that there was an opportunity to tell an interesting story here about um, not that not that there needs to be a direct link between um, being queer and, and being depressed, but um, you know, I think that that's a reality for a lot of, of queer teens, especially if they feel like they don't have um, sort of an, an outlet to express themselves. And I, I think that that would have been a cool place to take this. Story. I definitely agree. And we're going to get another indication of a storyline they didn't take uh, in, in just a couple more scenes here. Um, but back at the fancy pants penthouse bathroom which has like a king-sized bed type ottoman and also sinks and chairs and a very drunken hannah and her horse books and also kate 
and a sparkly silver wedding dress, which she temptingly takes out of its bag and tells Hannah she would look great in. And then Kate does such a baller villain move, which is that she leaves. She has just put like the match and the powder in the same room and she has just left feeling like it's going to take care of herself itself. And, uh, you know, it does because it leads to Hannah, who is now alone, holding up the dress and spinning around, which then leads to her retching and barfing on it. Kate comes in, looks triumphant, and then dips out. Oh my god, this scene is so funny. Drunk acting. It's just, it's so charming. I love her saying that she would have gotten Kate a fancy horse book with naked boys in it. Which, like, of course, Hannah, who is still so weirdly fixated on this horse book thing, is like, I know what would have made this whole situation better is if there were naked boys in the horse book. Um, then Hannah probably would have been more into the horse book. Um, but yeah, I just, Hannah being like, you know, Kate says, don't you love this dress? And Hannah's like, I love, love of that dress. It's, it's so funny. The reason. So Spencer arrives home to see her dad sitting on the couch um, she actually apologizes for running away, which I don't feel like Spencer has really anything to apologize for here. Um, Peter very quickly brings up Allison's grandmother. He spins this whole story about how he was hired to be the family. Jason was cut out of the will. Allison's grandmother died, and the whole thing made him look guilty for Allison's murder. Um, we flash back to uh, the Marin kitchen. Uh, a scene with Regina making chili with Hannah, Spencer, and Allison. Um, Regina is talking about um, talking about her children, and Allison, very not weirdly at all, asks what it would take for Regina to disown one of her children. Um, Regina basically says that there are some circumstances where she would do that, but I, I kind of like how you get the sense that Regina doesn't really like Allison that much, which I probably wouldn't like Allison that much if I was Regina either. Um, in present day, Spencer posits that Allison went to Georgia to get her grandmother to change the will, and that's why Jason killed Allison. I feel like as motives go, this is not a particularly interesting one, and also just like, I don't know, the idea of all these teenagers running around worrying about who's in what will seems a little goofy to me, but whatever. It's the, you know, it's the De Laurentiis dynasty, I suppose. Um, Spencer or Peter like very quickly is like don't say that Spencer wants to know why Peter would break the law for them leaving her father with the question what does the De Laurentiis family have on us but Peter does not answer her question yeah um the dropped plot line here is that when Grandma Marin is making the chili and they ask how much vinegar needs to go in it uh Hannah's grandma asks if anybody who's going to eat the chili is pregnant and the camera does a weird look over to Allison, which I take as further proof that there was uh, a possible Allie pregnancy being the solution to her disappearance plot line uh, that they just never they just never cashed in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But good point. I, I agree that Allison's questions like what would make you disown a grandchild? Like what if they were selling a family heirloom and going to use the money for drugs just totally hypothetically? Like 
this is very off-putting. Um, I, I really feel like uh, Allison is definitely doing her part here to make it weird. <laughs> yes, yeah, Allison, Allison always knows how to ask the weird questions. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the motive, like, for Jason uh, to have potentially killed Allison, it's like... Uh, Money is like the worst and stupidest motive that PLL ever deals with because money isn't real in this world. You just you have it or you don't or you get it or it goes away. It's always just a plot point. Uh, and Jason, it's we've never seen him wanting for money. Now we know he seems to have a great deal of money. So it, was it just that she was rubbing his nose in the fact that he was uh, going to be cut out of the will? It's it's very very difficult to figure. And also. Uh, let's say that Allison is the, the person who is going to inherit all of the money. If the money is the issue, if Allison is the person who's going to get it and Allison is presumed dead, it's just going to go to Allison's next of kin, which would presumably be her mother. So I don't know. This is all, this is all nonsense, but whatever. It's Spencer's latest theory of the crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just yeah, it doesn't you know. Especially the theory <laughs> this to see. Uh, then in the very dark, so dark, lit by a single desk lamp bulb office, Dr. Sullivan, who must have exceptionally good dark vision for someone her age, is she part hawk and or a vampire? is reading through files uh, and she makes a discovery. She has a patient with a persecution complex and anger management issues. We don't see the name, but we do see that they call their enemies nosy bitches. Dr. Sullivan soap opera talks to the empty room and says, I know who this person is. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Oh, poor Hannah. She is in the fancy pants bathroom crying as she rinses vomit out of Isabel's dress. Tom comes in saying that Kate was concerned about Hannah. Regina follows him in. When he discovers the dress, he starts yelling at Hannah. Um, Hannah says that Kate wasn't drunk or that, that Kate was drunk too. And he says that Kate isn't drunk. She just gave a very touching speech. Um, he, he yells about, he says, you know, I thought we were past this, but I guess we're not in a way that seems to suggest that Tom actually thinks Hannah is trying to sabotage this wedding because, in fact, everything is about him. But I also kind of wondered if he might have been referring, another dropped plot alert, um, to Hannah potentially having a drinking problem here um, because he notes that she smells like booze. Regina holds a, a crying Hannah and kind of defends her to Tom. Tom promptly throws them both out after Regina makes a comment that she would have just hurled on the bride. Love Regina in this scene. Um, I I just, poor Hannah and her drunk laundry just trying to rinse. This is, it's like, the, the barf is like yellow. It's like very like bile looking in, in the scene here. She's just trying to rinse it off in the sink, which is really, it's, it's not the way. This is a very fancy hotel, Hannah. Call the concierge. They will make this dress disappear and bring it back to you, like either unstained or like a whole new dress that looks just like it. Um, that, that is the right move if you're ever in Hannah's situation and have unfortunately vomited on your wicked stepmother's soon-to-be wedding dress while in a fancy hotel. Call the concierge. That is my advice to you. <laughs> Ugh. But uh, the, these parents, man, this, this week is a rough time for them. 
totally. Yeah. Um, Aria comes downstairs to the site of her parents, sitting in stony silence as Byron reads the newspaper. He has the newspaper fully flung up in front of his face, which is, pro tip, one of my dad's favorite moves. So, on tracks. Um, she hesitantly tells them that Mike has been breaking into houses for a while. She's known about it and thought keeping it a secret would help him, but it hasn't. She also mentions having to keep another secret in the family, uh, which is kind of a passive voice that doesn't dare remind anyone about Byron's actual actions, but could also be referring to Ella's, uh, you know, the, the damaged hand situation that she has recently been enlisted uh, to not tell the truth about. Then we see Mike himself. He comes downstairs and uh, no one speaks, but everyone looks a little hopeful. Yeah, I really like this. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's like Arya is kind of breaking the cycle here, the cycle of secrecy and um, just sort of like compartmentalizing and just like all of the sort of the things that her family is doing that, it, that is not serving anybody. And what's so interesting to me about that is that I believe it is Arya in season seven who is the one who says that the liars need to break the cycle of continuing to basically run around for A and um, and cover up their problems. So it's like Arya who, you know, is the liar who who lies the most, you know, we're, we're told about it time and time again, seems to actually have this sort of, um, you know, moral threshold of like, getting to this point where she is not yeah. willing to keep yeah i definitely agree um back in the bathroom man this bathroom's getting a lot of play in this episode um hannah is trying to find 24-hour cleaners as regina bags up the dress and says that this dress is like basically you know as good as dead and buried um, Kate arrives very sort of sweetly saying that she's brought hannah some ginger ale Regina breaks into Kate's purse, finding two water bottles, one filled with water, one filled with vodka. Um, Kate is, uh, you know, revealed to be the mastermind between, behind all of Hannah's turmoil this evening. Um, Hannah tells Kate that when she is sobered up, Kate will be in a world. Yeah, I love Hannah swearing blood vengeance and Kate just being completely unafraid. She really shouldn't be afraid because... Hannah has not really proven herself to be like a capable foe here in any way. Uh, I also felt like, man, I can't believe no one has departed the bathroom yet. Uh, you know, Tom obviously told his mother and daughter to, you know, GTFO. Um, but this bathroom is big enough that you could just live in it. So maybe that was Hannah's plan. She's just going to live in the bathroom indefinitely. But also this bathroom probably smells like... Oh, you know, it might because she did barf on the dress. But I also imagine that this bathroom has like one million scented things in it. It probably has like rose petals and potpourri and a bunch of air fresheners that are working overtime because this is a really fancy place and they don't want it to smell like bathroom. That's a fair point. Um, over fair at point. the cutest little queer date in the world, Maya is incredulous that a girl held Emily's head underwater and she still dated her. Maya says, girl, I got back just in time. And Emily kind of sweetly agrees with her, uh, but then has to get up and take a call from Dr. Sullivan. 
Okay, so this is the part of the Emily Maya date that I didn't particularly like, um, because I do feel like there's this page revisionist history that's, that starts in this episode and continues for a while, where Paige is like, oh, crazy Paige, oh, that weird, awful Paige that Emily made this horrible mistake with by sleeping <laughs> with, or by dating, um, and I feel, <laughs> that's later in the show, <laughs> do they ever, we never get, we never know, do we? Uh <laughs> We never get confirmation on that one. Um, and it just, like, uh, I I just feel like, once again, it's kind of, like, it feeds that part of the show that has the kind of, like, there was so much nastiness towards Paige and the fandom and all of that. And I feel like commentary like this from within the show just kind of feeds that. Um, not that I'm defending the head dunk. The head dunk was not a good choice. We've talked a lot about it already. Um, and I know I'm you, I think you and I are both like pretty ardent page, page defenders or page empathizers, but, um, yeah, I just, it seemed like I agree, especially because the relationship with Paige was, it demonstrated how far Emily had come, you know, that Emily, like it was a real sign of progress for her that she could kind of be in the Maya position and she could be the person who was out and comfortable and helping someone who is in the closet. So reducing it to a joke is not a good look. And also I'm going to say, I mean, I know that Emily and Maya already have a history together, but watch out. If you're on a date with someone who doesn't move like this, Look out, the way they talk about their exes could very well be the way they're going to talk about you. So, yeah, I, I do. It's the cutest little queer date, but you're right. We do have to give them uh, some demerits for acting like they're the cool queers and, uh, you know, Paige is not. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this, to me, almost felt like a line that was, like, indirect response to to the fans at this point because i i know page was we i mean we did a whole episode on it but like page was a very controversial character and people had very strong feelings about her um and so i wouldn't have been surprised if they felt like they needed to weirdly include this little kind of like you know i i have a lot of advice for the people who live in rosewood tonight i have advice about where you should make out in your cars i have advice about what you should do if you have to clean the barfthon dress i have advice about what you should do if someone is making fun of their ex while on a date with you i have and i also i have some advice for dr sullivan in the next scene is can i can i tell you about some of my advice that i have for go for it okay yeah so uh next we see dr sullivan making a very rookie mistake Despite suspecting that her office is bugged, she says out loud on the phone that Emily should come to her office with the other liars because, quote, I know who A is. Has she never read a single Agatha Christie book? Has she never watched even one episode of Midsummer Murders? If you ever know who the killer, stalker, baddie is, please do not opt to announce that without also immediately saying who it is. Not doing so is a clear invitation for someone to disappear you and your boots, pitchfork you in the back, push you off a cliff, which is exactly what happens, of course, by the time the liars have gathered in her office, Dr. Sullivan is nowhere to be found. They get a simultaneous text message from A saying, the doctor is out. To which I say, is she? Congratulations. Happy Pride Month. Oh, wait, no. 
It's more creepy and sinister. Sorry. Uh, but you know, what I do like about this is that it is like the one time in the series when a character says they know who A is and they actually do know who A is. I mean, they don't say who A is, which I, I completely agree. Total rookie mistake, especially the creepy dark bugs off of Dr. Sullivan. But, <laughs> it's, it's creepier than Jason's murder shed. Like you're just asking for something terrible to happen. But, um, but, but she actually does know who A is. And, and you know what? Even though therapy consistently is the villain of the piece, therapy is actually what inadvertently solves the mystery, at least for Dr. Sullivan. That's so true. Now, what do you think, like, what is your take on the ethics of Dr. Sullivan having figured this out and then calling the liars back to talk to them versus talking to Mona, who we learn is also her patient, versus telling the police that Mona might be a danger to people? Oh, she absolutely shouldn't have called the liars. I mean, that's, that's just putting a target on on their back it's breaking all kinds of confidentiality i mean probably what really she should do is she should talk to mona's parents i think because mona probably she shouldn't be alone in a space with mona right now because mona is clearly a danger to others but i think that um probably mona's mona's mom um should be called in maybe and and maybe a, a call to to the police as well although the police are, have been so unhelpful so um i think yeah I, I i think that calling the liars it's a good dramatic moment but it's completely not what but when i was thinking about why she didn't tell them that it was mona i was wondering if it was because of some kind of confidentiality issue maybe she wasn't going to tell them who it was maybe she was just going to try to give them mm. some advice on how to insulate themselves or how to proceed in this situation um but but either way, I mean, it, it it goes badly for everyone here. I so would love like all of the text of off that it's Mona. Like, can you just imagine the notes from Mona's <laughs> sessions? Because isn't one of the notes that we see as like obsession with Allison or something like that? Uh, I feel like Allison's name is mentioned or like refers to Allison's friends. we get we get uh, a whole series of like shots of the notes that she's going through and I know that there's mm -hmm. talks about Allison uh Arias talks about Allison I think that Mona's talks about I'll try to do I'll try to do an Instagram uh shot of of the Mona notes if I can yeah because how much do you think hannah came up in those notes i bet a lot i bet a lot as well yes yes um so our a tag is sullivan's office um a takes presumably their case file and a listening device out from underneath was this a bobblehead of yes Floyd? What yes was bobblehead? yeah yeah um and that's where the listening device was that the rosewood pd couldn't crack <laughs> Great job, Rosewood PD. Um, and uh, yeah, and and a a heads out of the office. Interesting though that the you know a had previously trashed the office earlier in the season, and that a took a different approach this time. Clearly, because the office is not Dutch Sullivan is gone, but the office is yeah not yeah it is uh, it is an interesting new move from a uh, the listening device under the Freud bobblehead. 
just was my note was Freud rarely does anyone any good uh, in this day and age, as proved by that listening device just being right underneath it. It's like hollowed out. It's like obviously Mona put that there uh, with the with the purpose of being able to eavesdrop on everyone's sessions. Totally, totally. Um, so I have a very important question for you. Who is the worst parent of the episode? We have got Tom Marin making everything about him and yelling about his daughter and forcing her to do a speech with her evil stepsister. We have got Ella Montgomery um, refusing to talk about medication for her son and involving her, both of her children in this terrible lie about her maybe broken wrist. We've got Byron Montgomery storming around, um, not listening, making everything about him, um, and refusing to to uh, to communicate. We've got uh, Peter about every which way, lying to his children, um, yelling at Spencer, yelling at her boyfriend, terrifying her, and pounding on the car. Uh, well, yeah. I think that Peter Hastings actually like kind of grabs and shoves Toby. So he's like, he's like on the verge of physically assaulting uh, Spencer's boyfriend who might still be a minor. I'm not totally sure how old Toby werewolf is supposed to be. Um, So, I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely bad. Uh, But I have to give it, I mean, Tom Marin does not get the crown because he's always awful in this way. Like he's being who he always is. He has not upped his terrible level significantly. Uh, However, I feel like uh, Byron and Ella together are so completely failing Mike and Aria uh, that I'm, I'm giving it to them both. I'm giving it as a joint award. I don't think that Ella could have earned her crown which it probably should be hers but she couldn't have done it without byron because if byron wasn't someone who she was afraid to talk to about these issues uh then then everything would be easier they would be able to communicate uh and actually maybe also talk to their son about what what's going on with him and what he thinks they should do to care for him that is all that is all true. Um, yes, Byron and Ella really—they're—they're they're like, um, you know, they're like a—they're like a husband and wife directing team or something. But in for terrible parenting, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really bad. It's really bad. Uh, yeah, uh, best would- parent of the episode for sure, Ashley Marin. I don't think there's any competition uh, on the scene for her this week. Yeah, I mean, I think Regina definitely takes, like, best grandparent of the entire series. Um, but it's Yeah, like we don't ever meet any of the other grandparents, I don't think. We, we... I don't think so. I don't think so. It would, it would be hard to <laughs> Yeah, but also to Regina could qualify as best parent, being that she has, like, a complete contempt for her own narcissistic offspring. Yes, and she's a great parent for Ashley. I mean, I, what's... I think... An, Another thing that's great about her introduction in this episode is that we already know at this point that Ashley doesn't have a relationship with her own parents. And so you really get the sense that Regina has been a surrogate yeah. parent. Uh, for an episode that I thought was going to be just a lot of setup, it had a lot of stuff happening. It had Maya coming back. It had uh, it had Regina coming to town and being a complete delight. 
Uh, it had, you know, it had them telling uh, Dr. Sullivan about A. It also had uh, a lot of stuff going on with Mike, where Arya is, as you said, breaking the cycle with her family. So they're like for a setup episode, there is actually a lot of forward plot movement. And it's the kind of forward plot movement that's actually, it, it feels like it was missing towards the earlier part of season two. So it's interesting that they kind of put it all in here, mm -hmm. like they kind of backloaded uh, the front half of the season. Well, it's also really interesting to me that last episode, the reveal of the NAT club seemed so potent and so right. And it's only mentioned a couple of times in this episode. We sort of shift our suspicions back over to Jenna. Um, and then the whole like Jason Peter thing. Um, and and it, it makes me recognize that like in my memory, NAT was this huge thing for a while, but it, it kind of is making me think that maybe they come and go more than hmm. I realize. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, this is also a great episode because uh, Prezra himself is not in it, despite their, uh, you know, rather harebrained resolution last episode that they were going to start telling people, starting with Arya's parents. That has all apparently been put on ice. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Wish that it would stay on ice. Yes. <laughs> Like a dead body at a Halloween party. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, this is, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this more next week, but why do you think that this big engagement party is happening in Philadelphia? Don't Tom and Isabel live in Baltimore? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, and Because it's not even like Ashley is invited oh. to the party or anything. Um, yeah. I don't know. And Isabel does not, is not in this episode. So, you know, we, we just assume that she's off screen the whole time. I mean, I'm just assuming that know. Tom wants to rub it in everyone, everyone's face that he has this nice new family, um, which wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Maybe he's having parties in Philadelphia uh, and in Baltimore later on, but he's also, they, they wind up getting married in the vicinity of Rosewood. Right, right. They do for whatever reason. I don't remember why, but we'll find out next week. Um, next week is going to be a very Yay. special episode. Um, it is the season two A finale <laughs> over my dead body. Is that what it's called? Um, and it is going to be very special, not just because it's a finale episode, but it, because we are going to be recording in the same location. Um, so that is going to be a tremendous amount of fun. We will, uh, we will see how it goes. We will be in my little office here recording together face-to-face. -to -face. I mean, we are face-to-face. Right, -face, like, right. Literally for the first time. So that's going to be really fun and exciting. It's like a live episode, only, of course, not. Um, but we're really looking forward to it. So that'll be super fun. We are looking forward to it indeed. Um, if you have thoughts on this episode, you can send us an email at everybodyapodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can check out our Instagram at everybody a podcast. You can also send this in a rating and review on iTunes. Any more thoughts? No, uh, just get ready for next week. We've got a lot of stuff coming up. We have some Emerson. We have some talking dolls. We have, oh, so much, so much to look forward to. Another murder oh weapon, goodness. potential murder weapon. Yeah, it's going to be oh, banana crackers. There's a so lot much. to get through. There certainly is. There certainly is. Yeah. Prepare for like a three hour episode. Okay. Well, until next time.
Bye.